0: We serve an awesome God, and when He puts something on your heart that's, you know, that's just a, an inspiration, it's, it's amazing. You know, there are certain people in the Bible, certain names that resonate with folks, whether they're religious-minded or not, Moses, Noah, Samson, those are names that ring a bell. And you might be wondering why I had this, this, particular, uh, this particular scripture. You see, Samson is a name that's recognizable pretty much to everybody. Yeah. okay. And the entirety of his story is told in four chapters in the book of Judges. Chapters 13 through 16. If you want to go there, we're going to just park in 16 today. That's where we're going to stay, spend some time. But chapters 13 through 16... Tells the entire story of a guy whose name is recognizable to most everybody. The reason I wanted to read this one, when he left Gaza and he tore out the gate and the post and all of that, I envisioned this as I've read it or heard the story told. He just kind of walked out the gate and up a hill like this for within sight of the city and planted it right there. Well, I just found out a few weeks ago... that the hill overlooking Hebron was 38 miles away from where he took it out of the ground. 38 miles. Basically, Samson didn't have to say a whole lot. What that said was, I am the man. I'm the man, and if anybody's got a problem with that, we could have a conversation, and you're not going to like the outcome. And in earlier in, in the story, and I recommend it, it's just the four chapters, you can honestly, ten minutes you can read the whole thing. Earlier on, the, the, the Philistines, because it tells the story that the children of Israel had messed up again, Philistines oppressed them for 40 years, and Samson was their warrior. And so 3,000 of them came after Samson. 3,000. And they told it to the, other, his, the other Jews, you know, you guys are going to catch a lot of grief. And they went to Samson and go, look, man, not for nothing, We don't want to catch any grief from these people. They want us to turn you over. And he goes, well, give me your word that you won't kill me, and I'll let you do that. So the scriptures tell us they tied him up with new ropes, took him out, and as soon as the 3,000 Philistines saw him, they come a-running, just hollering. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. He snapped those ropes like it was nobody's business. The New International Version says he took the jawbone of a young donkey. Man, the King James, it's memorable. He took the jawbone of an ass. 3,000 of them attacked him. He killed 1,000 of them with his jawbone. Talk about I'm the man. I mean, come on, fellas. And I imagine the other 2,000 go, man, will you look at the time? We're going to mess around and miss lunch. <laughs> we got to go. In verse 16, after he does this, he meets Delilah. Delilah must have been an incredible woman. Unbelievably beautiful. And when they got together, it says that the rulers of the Philistines, they wanted to know the secret of his strength. They wanted to know how they could weaken him and defeat him because he was public enemy number one to those folks. He brought a lot of grief and a lot of heartache and a lot of nonsense. He was just a burr under their saddle. And the rulers, it says, plural, in verse 5 of chapter 16, the rulers said, We will give, each of us, we'll give you 1,100 shekels of silver if you find out the source of his strength. Okay. That's 28 pounds of silver. and that's like hitting the lottery. <laughs> right? You find out what makes him strong, and you just hit the lottery. So she got on him a little bit. Hey, what is the source of your strength? How is it that you are strong? Of course, now, we know... That he had taken, he was told, his folks were told in chapter 13, he's to be a Nazarite. He's never to drink alcohol, he's never to eat anything unclean, and a razor is never to touch his head. Okay? So some of us may know that it was his hair that was the source of his strength. So she's she's on him. You know, she needed to get paid, basically. What's the source of your strength? Verse 7. Tie me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, and I will be weak like any other man. So he falls asleep. She takes the bowstrings, ties him up. Philistines come in the house, and she says, "Samson, the Philistines are upon you." He jumped up and snapped them like there was nothing. Now the scriptures don't tell us what happened to the Philistines who were in the house. If I happened to be one of them, I'd have made a hasty retreat, like in overtime. You know, overdrive. Boom, I've got to go. So here, and she comes back. Oh, you've lied to me. You've made me a fool to my people. Oh, what is the source of your strength? Verse 11, he says, Tie me with new ropes, and I will be weak like any other man. So sure enough, you says there's a pattern here. He falls asleep. She binds him with new ropes. Philistines come in the house. Samson, the Philistines are upon you. Bam! Snaps those ropes. And again, I'm assuming it didn't end well for the Philistines who had joined him, but we're not told. Now, she's really sad. Good heavens! You made me a fool to my people. You know, you've lied to me. Don't you love me? Verse 13, he says, Take the braids of my hair, which hadn't been cut in his entire lifetime, and weave them into the fabric in the loom, and then pin it in place. And I will be weak like any other man. So, she, of course, he falls asleep. And she does so. Same situation. The Philistines are upon you, and he jumps up and snaps all that nonsense. Now, nah, she's really just heartbroken. Why don't you trust me? Verse 16 says it best. And I'm not going to make any inference relative to any marital relationships whatsoever. I've been married too long to do so. But it says, With such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was sick to death of it. (laughs) Straight up. This is scripture, people. I'm just quoting. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) Ladies, that's all I'm saying. This is scripture. And finally, in verse 17, he said, cut my hair. And the same thing happened. They cut his hair. The Philistines are upon you. And he thought he would jump up and take care of business like he had the other three times. But he didn't because verse 20 says that the Lord had left him. You know, the title of the of the message today is Flirting with Sin. Hebrews 12, chapter 1 is fabulous. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders. And the sin that so easily entangles us. And let us run with perseverance the race before us. The sin that so easily entangles us. I look at... There's a parallel to what happened with Samson and Delilah to the fact of being tempted, of us as his children being tempted. A temptation can come to us and we go, but no, you know, no, no. And then maybe we say yes. Amen, Mom. That's all right. Because we have a relentless enemy. 1 Peter 5.8 says that the devil goes around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And here, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood, speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we all are members of one body, and your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Do not give him a foothold. And doggone it, he's a persistent cuss. I have prayed, Lord, I'm tired. Lord, I'm tired. He's coming at me from all angles, and I'm tired. He knows the buttons to push in each case. (coughs) And with Samson, it was the ladies. He had a situation earlier before we get to 16, with with a situation with a female. very same thing played out. And you stop, and when you read this, when you just read 16, you think to yourself, what was Samson thinking? What in heaven, <laughs> what was he thinking? Come on, three times, three times. She says, what is the source? And he lied to her, and she did it. What in the world would make him think, other than the incredible nagging, that she wouldn't try it to fourth? It says when, he, when she told him, after he told her to cut his hair, she told him, she says, come back one more time. Come back one more time because he told me. I know he's told me it all now. And, when, and it says the Philistine leader, they came, they brought the silver with them. But what was he thinking? And that's not the only case that we see in Scripture. What were they thinking? David, with Bathsheba. Now, later on in David's life, when he was too old, his, his leading generals, his mighty men, told him, man, look, don't go out and battle with us anymore. You sit here and you chill at the, the palace. All right? You chill at the palace. But not this time. He had his people out fighting, and he's lounging. Nice day. He's out on the roof of the palace walking around, and he looks down on the roof of a house nearby, and there's a woman bathing. That's Sheba the wife of one of his most faithful and loyal soldiers, Uriah the Hittite. And she must have been beautiful too. Because he came in and said, you bring, have her come and see me. Of course, he seduced her. And then she got pregnant. So he said, call, call Uriah back from the, from the conflict, from the battle. Bring him here. I've got to talk to him. Have him report to me. And he does so, tells him, go home, stay the night with your wife. But Uriah was such a loyal, not just to his king, but to his army and to his comrades. They were in the field, so he slept on the porch at the palace. So that next night, David goes, did you go see your wife? Well, no. My friends are in the field. I'm not going to go and spend time with my wife when they aren't able to do so. He said, well, come on in, listen, let's have a drink. Let's have several. Hoping to get him drunk, send him home, so he could cover the sin. Mm -mm. Uriah was too loyal and he was too faithful. He slept on the porch again. David asked him, "Hey, did you go see your wife? No. Not the right thing to do. So David sat down and wrote a letter. Sealed it. Gave it to Uriah and he said, Here, you give it to, I think it was Joab or Boaz, Joab, I believe, the general, the leading general, said, here, hand-to-hand, hand deliver this letter to him. He got it, he read the letter, and it said, put Uriah at the front of the, of the line, engage in battle, and when it is intense, when it's really going on, fall back. Just to ensure he would die. And you think, what was he thinking? David as the king could have had concubines. <coughs> oh, excuse me. He could have had concubines. any woman who was available. He could take as a wife, which is what he did with Bathsheba, once she was available. Second Samuel twenty three is getting near the end of David's life, and at the end in twenty three it speaks of his mighty men. Man, you want to read some good stuff. I mean, some good battle-type stuff. There's a couple stories in there. He speaks of them, names the mighty men. One guy took a spear and killed 600 people. I think one guy, if I remember, it's been a while since I've read it, I think one guy killed a, a polar bear, you know, single-handedly. There's just in, there, everyone who was fiercely loyal, everyone who was devoted to their king, and everyone who was a mighty man of God and a warrior is mentioned. In the 39th verse... Of chapter 23, it's Uriah the Hittite. What was David thinking? The most glaring example for me is the Israelites. Coming out of Egyptian bondage. They had watched Jehovah God visit ten plagues upon Egypt. Ten awful plagues. Flies and gnats and darkness and the water returned to blood and locusts. This is a modern day reference to the locust thing. Apparently the locust is a bug about as big as your finger. Right now, moving through Africa and Kenya, I just saw this last week on CNN, there is a swarm of locusts that's 37 miles long and 25 miles wide moving through Kenya as we speak right now. That's a plague of biblical proportions. But they watched God visit the plagues upon them, the final plague being the death of the firstborn. They saw how, when the blood was put on the doorpost, that they were biped, that they were spared. While all of Egypt, livestock included, lost their firstborn. And they were cut loose. So as they're going through the wilderness, God's presence is before them, a pillar of cloud by day and a fire by night. Leading them, leading them along their way. Leads them over to the Red Sea. And there they are up against the Red Sea. As the Scriptures tell us God hardened Pharaoh's heart and he comes after him with his army. And now they're all scared. They, say, <laughs> they complain to poor Moses. Man, you brought us out here and just died in the wilderness? But that pillar of cloud and fire moved around between the Israelites and the Egyptian army and stood there. And kept them away. While God parted the Red Sea. And they walked across on dry ground. Now they saw this. They get to the other side. Moses goes up on the Holy Mountain to get the Ten Commandments. And while he's gone. (laughs) While he's gone. They had Aaron, his brother, build him a golden calf and they worshiped the calf and said, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. What were they thinking? What were they thinking? You see, and there are times when, as I looked at this, as this message came together for me, there are times when I've got to think, do I do the same thing? Do we do the same thing? Do we, does something happen where we look back and think, what were we thinking? Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, you know, I'm preaching to the preacher here too, people, believe me, because it happened to me two weeks ago this very day. <laughs> oh, this is, ladies, you're going to love this one. Monica had gone Friday after work. She went to Binghamton because her mom sold a big house. She's in a smaller house, it's still a couple thousand square feet, which is smaller. But her and two of her sisters got together, and I think they pulled about a 15-hour day on Saturday painting the entire downstairs, ceiling and the walls and everything, just painted the whole thing, just worked like crazy. (coughs) So afterward, on Sunday, before she came home, they went to, I guess she got some cheesecake from the Cheesecake Factory, got a piece for everybody. Okay, so she got the cheesecake. Now, when she comes home that afternoon... I'm going to be the good, dutiful husband. I'm going to help her unload the car because she's always got something with her. She had a big plastic bag full of stuff, and I happened to take a peek inside. Uh oh. Yeah, exactly, John. Uh oh. There were three, there was one of those to go things with three little chunks of cheesecake in it. And it was just like this, man. It was like, cheesecake, let's go. (laughs) I took it out and I set it aside, took the bag dutifully into the kitchen. Left it there, stealthily went over to the kitchen drawer, (laughs) grabbed me a fork. Right? And I'm back in the now I'm back in the living room. I'm watching playoff football eating cheesecake. Oh yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so I was just loving life. And she happened to, as she was unpacking and getting there, she happened to must have noticed that cheesecake was missing. Because she walked into the living room, just as I got the last bite, and I'm like this. I'm I'm just locking and loading the last bite of cheesecake. Sisters, you know where this went from here, right? It didn't end well. Brothers, I know that there are times, if you've been married long enough, there's going to be times of intense fellowship with your wife. But it's always better if there's a two-way street, if it's some of this. You don't want to be on a one-way street. (laughs) I was on a one-way street. That fellowship was in one direction only. Oh, my goodness, I like to tell her, I said, you're cute when you're mad, baby, but boy, it's just so much better when you're mad at somebody else. (laughs) But what was I thinking? About a month or month and a half ago, Mark Wagner sent me a link to a... uh, presentation by a gentleman named Joshua McDowell. And it's a name that I've heard of, and McDowell, I guess he's written about 150 books, and the most recent of which is, I'm not sure the specifics, something along the lines of A Cancer in the Church, A Cancer in the Church. And the subject was online pornography. He goes, and he, he alludes to it and references it. And I remember that week, in fact. It was the week I last spoke. And I, one day at lunch, I watched about 10 minutes of this thing. And uh, that Sunday, after I'd spoken, we had our lunch downstairs. And I was helping Miss Bessie here clean up in the kitchen. She had it on her phone, and she was showing Edie McCleary, this guy. She goes, Bessie looks at me, she goes, have you seen this? I said, well, I've seen about 10 minutes of it. And she looked me dead in the eye and she goes, this needs to be preached. And I look back at her like, what are you talking about, Willis? You know? Are you kidding? This topic? Let's see, a few weeks ago, as I was reading through at work, I've got, I'm in several places in the Bible. I get out of a moment of work. I just pull it up on Google and read. And I was running through Samson's story. And I took a minute at lunch and I watched the presentation. It's 30 minutes in length, okay, and I couldn't believe that I was so oblivious to what the threat that this is. He does his research, apparently his his calling card is his thorough, thorough, accurate research. Talked about millions of websites, billions of hours of this stuff watching. What what scared me, the target audience, 12 to 17-year-old kids. 12 to 17 years old. And per his research, there's a very high percentage of Christian men and women that are viewing this stuff. Okay? The number one cause of Christian divorce is pornography. He referenced a book by, some, by a lady, Vicky something or other, I can't recall now, but it was called Married to a Porn Addict. And he said it was so powerful, he wept as he read the book. And it was so impactful on him, he turned around and reread the book immediately after completing it. This is a guy that's written 150 books. And he gets into this thing about how the brain works, how it actually functions. Because when you see this, apparently right behind your forehead, up in the front, that's your frontal lobe. That's where the reasoning part is. But in the back, back here in the bottom, that's your impulse part. That's impulsive. And what happens, apparently, and he he delves into it a little bit on the scientific basis, but what happens is it just bypasses the reasoning piece altogether, goes right back to the impulse part, and then dopamine is released, which is where it's actually addictive. It's addictive. Every bit as much as heroin or cocaine, it's addictive. And I'm sitting here just I was like a deer in the headlights. I, I'm listening to this. And I thought, how could I, you know, what in the world is going on? And what in the world is a threat is a cancer, as he calls it, in the church and a threat to our kids. He had up saying, when we give in to our cravings, we give up on our reason. He said, those that are addicted to pornography, 58% experience financial loss, 33% lose a job, and over 50% completely lose interest in marriage. And during the presentation, which is going to be available, the elders have the link, we have it available, and if you're a parent, or if you're unknowledgeable and completely oblivious like I was, you need to see it. It's nothing vile. I think the guy's, he's a Christian author, and he was speaking at a pastor's conference. He actually had the son of a pastor come up. And this young man, Nice-looking young guy. Every time, of course, Pastor Son, he's every time the door's open, he's there. he's there doing stuff. He led a youth group. He was very active. He graduated from a Christian college. And he was addicted to online pornography. As hard as it can be done. It took him five years to quit. Five years to be free. But now talks about having to rewire the brain and re-engage the reasoning part. So... <laughs> After I saw it, that very day I came home and my kids know that I might be thinking about who knows what and I can come up with anything out of left field. It could just, this one didn't even come out of left field. This was through the parking lot, across the street, and halfway down the road. Because Christine comes in, I'm like, how was your day, baby? Oh, yeah, you know, we're talking. I go, hey, let me ask you something. How old were you the first time you saw online pornography? Now, bear in mind, our kids didn't have smartphones until high school. But her response was, I don't remember exactly what she said, but it was kind of like, well, all righty then. <laughs> you know? All right. Yeah. Okay. You know, she didn't even bother to ask where that one came from. But then she got serious, brothers and sisters. She got serious. And she said it was middle school, Dad. Now, Will was working that night, so I hit the sack. In the morning, first thing, we're making breakfast, caught him in the kitchen. I go, bud, I go, how old were you the first time you saw online pornography. He didn't even blink. He just got a serious... furred his brow, thought about it. He goes, it was middle school, Dad. This is a terrible poison and an addiction that is attacking our young people and can undermine us as Christians and it can undermine the church. I asked Christine as we were talking after you know, as we were talking that night. She goes, Dad, I've got friends that come home. Every day they go right to their room and they get on a device and they look at this stuff for hours. Hours. It's terrifying. So yes, Miss Bessie, you were right. This needs to be preached and we need to be aware. And I thought about My cheesecake experience. (laughs) Because the thing with the just shooting, just just completely bypass reasoning, we ain't going to deal with reasoning, we're going right to impulse. Honestly, it's cheesecake, get a fork, let's go. It was the very same neurological process McDowell speaks of with the online pornography. Had my reasoning part of my brain (laughs) been able to weigh in, it might have gone something like this. Okay, listen dummy. If you eat all of this cheesecake, she's going to light you up like a Christmas tree. But you eat some of it and save some for her, she's still going to light you up. It just won't be as painful. Right? <coughs> you see, the first thing they did... When the Philistines captured Samson, they gouged out his eyes and blinded him. And when we allow, be it this or anything else, to give the devil a foothold, we, too, become blind. We, too, become blind. I was blind to the obvious reality that played out, sadly enough, two weeks ago today when I ate all her cheesecake didn't even think about it. But this is far more serious than something like that. This is a threat to our children. This is a threat to our church. This is a, a, a completely unbeknownst to me. And it's a, it's a good conversation to have. But the first thing they did was they blinded Samson. And we too can become blind. We too can become blind. Whatever it is that... We struggle with whatever it is that we become blinded to, we can rationalize, we can justify it. Or maybe we even think, God won't know. I'm, I, John, I thought this I thought that. God won't know. We become blind to it. Satan is incessant, and he will not stop. He's going to hit us every way he possibly can. Poor Samson, it was the ladies. But you see, the beautiful thing about it, brothers and sisters, is this. God, here's our prayers. When we turn and we tell him, I've been blind, Father, forgive me. Look at Samson. Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. They had all gathered to watch Samson. They were going to bring him out and make sport of this guy who'd been such a pain in their rear ends. And he was blinded. He told the little servant that was with him, let me lean up against the two pillars that support the temple. All the Philistine rulers were there, thousands of people up above, and it all was supported by these two pillars. And here's Samson standing there. He'd been weak as any man since the day they cut his hair. But Almighty God heard his prayer. Give me strength one last time. And he pressed against those pillars, and he broke them down. And in his death, it tells us, he killed more Philistines than he had in his entire life. God heard his prayer even though he went through the thing with Delilah even though he went through the thing with the other girl even though he (laughs) we ask what was he thinking God still loved him and he still loves us he loves us more than we will know and he always loves us if we see a situation where we've blinded ourselves. I've shared this with you before, and I've been on and off and fighting it back and forth. My, my thing with nicotine, I'll be one. I'm blinded to it. I need to stop. You know, I am with, a, with the encouragement of my kids and wife. I'm eating a whole lot healthier here if it's the first of the year. I'm eating so many vegetables, I swear you could call me bugs and get away with it. For those of us you too young, bugs bunnies who I'm referencing here. I never eat so many vegetables in my life. But still, in that spot, I've been blinded. But God always hears, always forgives, and always loves. Is there anything in your life that you've become blind to? Is there anything, if you look at it honestly where you let the devil get a foothold. If there's anything that we can help you and pray for you for, we're going to sing a song here in a second. And when we sit back down, just stay standing and let it be known that you need our prayers and support. We don't even have to know what it is. God knows already. And you'll get on the list, and I'll tell you, with all of us praying just in our regular prayers, the Scriptures promise us the Holy Spirit in tones on our behalf, with groanings and utterances deeper than human understanding. I don't have to remember every name on my list. God knows the list. The Spirit knows the list. And if I tell you I'm praying for you, which I pray for this family every single day, then I'm praying for you every single day. And he hears our prayer. All he asks... Is that we repent and ask for those prayers. Please consider this. And I know I was scared, Miss Bessie, to preach this subject. But I'm glad that God showed it to me, because I'm not that smart. God is truly good. Let's stand and sing, please.